well, probably all of us, certainly all adults, have at times pondered what we're to do with our lives. What's God up to with us and for us? I'm sure we've asked questions about a future vocation. Maybe we've asked questions or even sought out some advice about our gifts, our strengths, or even our weaknesses, or thought about our desires. What do we want to do? Well, whether you're asking those questions in your late teen years or early 20s or somewhere midlife even, the point is that we've asked those questions. Some are actively asking those questions. And similarly, every Christian hopefully has at times asked what God might have in store for them regarding his church and his kingdom and spiritual matters. Where and how would God use me? Such questions might be considered when we encounter one of those lists in the Bible of the spiritual gifts, like Romans 12 or 1 Corinthians 12. Try to see where we might line up. Or maybe when we reread of that metaphor that Paul uses, that the church is like a body. It's a whole, but it has many parts, and each part does their own unique thing. Or those questions might surface whenever we find ourselves in a new church. How do I fit in this church? Where am I needed here? How can I be used here? Well, our next passage in the book of Exodus might be of help to those kinds of questions of calling and gifting and desires and even labors or work. Exodus 31 doesn't speak to these things directly per se, at least not our contemporary questions about being active in this world or being active in the church. Now, Exodus 31 is utterly unique and special for the people it is dealing with and the place and and even the covenant era in which it's found. But by way of analogy, Exodus 31 helps us think through those fundamental questions of how to function as a Christian, how to be useful in God's service, or, or even what does it mean to be a flourishing human being made in God's image. And we need to know the usefulness and relevance of Exodus 31 right up front. Because like other recent chapters in Exodus, not least chapter 30, which dealt with incense and oils to be used in the tabernacle, Exodus 31 can also seem irrelevant for us today. But again, by way of analogy, I think we see these themes not only move over to the New Testament, but once again flourish and swell and blossom in the New Testament. So let's read Exodus 31, the first 11 verses together. It says, The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability, intelligence, with knowledge in all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Ahaliab, 
the son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan. I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you, the tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony and the mercy seat that is on it and all the furnishings of the tent and the table and its utensils and the pure lampstand with all its utensils and the altar of incense and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils and the basin and its stand and the finely worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron the priest and the garments of his sons for their service as priests, and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense for the holy place. According to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. So here we come to the craftsmen who are actually going to build the tabernacle that God has been describing in thorough detail. So don't miss the context here. Remember, as far back as Exodus 19, God had drawn his people to the base of Mount Sinai. God called Moses up to Mount Sinai. God descended upon Mount Sinai, and there God began to speak to Moses. At first, in chapter 20, 21, 22, God gave laws to Moses. But but then by chapter 25, God begins to unfold the specifics for the tabernacle. For three pretty long chapters, God gives, again, thorough detail as to the specifications and the furnishings and utensils of the tabernacle. Chapters 28 and 29 dealt with the priesthood and the sacrifices. And the point of all of this is that God intends to dwell with his people long term. He intends to dwell in their midst, as God put it in chapter 25, verse 8. Look back there. God said to Moses, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. There's the thesis statement, the the purpose of these long chapters from 25 through 31. So that situates us in the context of our passage. Now, Let's analyze and apply our passage of the first 11 verses of Exodus 31 under five headings. And I'll just give them to you up front. The calling, the gifting, the desire, the work, and the God behind it all. With each of these, we'll take time first to consider the meaning and significance of the original context and the original people in the story. So what we could call there is them back then. And then with each point, we'll also seek to apply it to our lives today, what we might call us now. So first, there's the calling, the calling. In the Exodus story, there have already been some people singled out by name, by God, to to perform special purposes on God's behalf. Moses is, of course, chief among them. He's the prophet, the spokesman for God. He's elsewhere called the shepherd of Israel. But also Aaron and his sons, Nadab and Abihu, have been called out by God, by name, to be priests among the people. And now, craftsmen of all people, of all classes. You may not think that that's what would be next, that these people would be singled out for a special purpose in that of building the tabernacle and all of its furnishings. So 
So Bezalel, verse 2, he'll be something like the general contractor overseeing it all. Ahilab, he will be the foreman. Uh, he'll be the number two, the right-hand man. And these two men are not only skilled to accomplish all the work, but also to lead others who would volunteer to help out. So look over at chapter 35 with me. You'll see this there. Uh, in chapter 35, Moses has already come down the mountain from Mount Sinai. Something bad happens in chapter 32. We'll get to that eventually. But by 35, Moses is passing on to the people all that he had received on Mount Sinai from God. And here we mostly get just repetition, but occasionally an added detail or two. So look at chapter 35, verse 30. Then Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, with all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood, for work in every skilled craft. And he has inspired him to teach both him and Ahaliab, the son of Ahisamach of the tribe of Dan. He has filled them with skill to do every sort of work done by an engraver, by a designer, by an embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, or by a weaver, by any sort of workman or skilled designer. And then just a couple of verses into chapter 36. Bezalel and Ahaliab and every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary shall work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. Well, notice in chapter 35, verse 34, that added detail, he has inspired them to teach. Teach what? Well, not Sunday school, but shop class. They teach craftsmanship. These were men who could not only do the work themselves and do any part of the work themselves. They're not just jacks of all trades, masters of none, but masters of all trades. They can do and they can teach. They'll oversee the whole project. I think we can already draw out a couple of lessons or observations. One is that apparently God provides for what he prescribes. God provides for what he requires. And so God had given directions for the tabernacle construction, but he doesn't leave them in the hands of Moses and or Aaron for them to figure it out and for them to pull off the construction. He calls out and he provides skilled men to take it from there. Secondly, there's the sheer practicality of it all. The cutting, the bending, the making. Apparently our God is not merely a God of priests and prophets or preachers. Our God is interested in those who work with their hands. This is tangible stuff. This is real stuff. It's practical. But the practicality of it doesn't mean it's unspiritual. Oh, no. What these men are up to, what others 
will be involved in in the construction of the temple is indeed spiritual work, though it is physical and tangible because the place itself is for the presence of God. The place itself is for the worship and the sacrifices before God. And here's where things begin to translate to us today. Of course, there's no one-to-one correspondence between a Bezalel and any of us in this room. None of us have been called out by God audibly to build him an ark for his presence in worship. But we all have a calling as Christians. Not just a calling in our salvation, though that's the most common way the words called and calling are used in the New Testament. We've been called out by God, called into his marvelous light. It's also used in the New Testament in a ministry kind of way, where Paul can talk about his calling as, a Gentile, as a, an ambassador to the Gentiles. But there's also a theological calling, and that's the one I'm referring to. The Reformation gave birth to this idea of every Christian having a calling, or they also called it a vocation, or they also called it a station. Now, by vocation, I don't mean your job, though that's included in this idea of vocation. And by your station in life, I mean those unique components of your life which mean your job, your family, where you live, your neighborhood, your church, anything else you've committed yourself to and involved yourself in, these all make up your station. Now, unless, unless your occupation is sinful, like you, you, know, you don't deal drugs to the glory of God or something, uh, so just know that. But apart from something like that, your job, your station, your assignments are just that. They are assignments from God to be done for his glory and the good of others. If you're a student right now, that's that's a calling. That's part of your station in life right now. It's an assignment from God. You may not have been called by God audibly into this station you're in right now. You may not have heard from God literally that you should marry her and live in this house and have that job. I suspect you didn't, but wherever you are is where God has you. It may be different than you thought. It may be unlike what you wanted, but it is where God has you. And we need to wake up to the reality that it is an assignment from God, hard as it might be, disappointing as we might be. Now, it's not only radical thinking for us today to hear that, but that was way radical thinking in the days of the Reformation, the 1500s. Because the Roman Catholic Church in those days had had taught a strict line between the secular and the sacred They said that real spirituality was experienced by getting out of the world. You get out of the world to pray. You get out of the world to go to mass. You go back into the world simply because you have to. But ideally, I mean, the best scenario would be, why don't you be a priest or a nun? And you come out 
And that's where real spirituality takes place. Well, Martin Luther and others saw that everything in our lives, not just our church, not just our prayers, but everything in our lives was to be an expression of the two great commandments. To love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. They believed everything in your life that can be done in love to God and neighbor should be done in love to God and neighbor. Consciously so. Overtly so. Wouldn't it transform or begin to transform your perspective on mundane tasks if you more often bought into this idea that it's a divine calling put before you, an assignment from heaven? What, what might it mean for students and engineers and stay-at-home moms and teachers and small business owners and those in the military, whatever it is you do, to, to view your work as a calling from God and to view your assignment as a conscious expression of fulfilling the two great commands in simple everyday things. Well, that leads secondly to the gifting. The gifting, or, or what might be called the filling, because that's the language in Exodus 31 Verse 3, God says, I have filled him with the Spirit of God. And then that's unpacked with words like with ability, intelligence, knowledge, craftsmanship, artistic designs. And it's repeated again in chapter 35 as Moses comes and addresses the people. God has filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, with craftsmanship. Now to my knowledge, this is the first time in the Bible, that the Bible speaks of the Spirit filling. God's breath entered man at creation. That's similar, but not the same language exactly. Uh, it was said of Moses that God would be with him and would tell him what to say, but that's not quite the same thing. Perhaps Moses was filled with the Spirit, we don't know. But this is the first time in the Bible that it's explicitly said that someone is filled with the Spirit and filled with the Spirit to make stuff and shape stuff and create things. To be filled with the Spirit is to be endowed with God's presence for a unique ability to do God's assigned work. That's what it means. That ability may have been there somewhat before, what we call a natural ability, God-given natural ability. And so I suspect with these two guys in Exodus 31, they probably both had been real familiar with hammers and making things before. And if so, then the Spirit's filling them here just enhances that natural ability, that empowering. It's elevating it. They're making things of every sort. They have the ability to teach others to make things of all sorts. God had filled them for this purpose. So you can imagine when they get from Moses the detailed script of what we call in our Bibles Exodus 25 to 27, laying out the description of the tabernacle. 
They just get it. These are the guys that get it. They don't need the architectural map. They don't need a drawing. They don't need a vision. They can see it. They're not intimidated by the amount of detail that God gave. Neither are they intimidated by the details that God left out. Yes, there are for all the words that God said about what the temple or tabernacle should be like. There's some things he didn't say about it. And they're just going to have to figure that out and fill it in and, and come up with something on their own. And they're not intimidated by that. They were made for this. God empowered them for it. God gave his spirit to them for this. It's like Eric Little in that old movie, Chariots of Fire. I'm just curious how out of touch I am with my audience today. How many of you have seen Chariots of Fire? Just so, okay, that's pretty good. So my cultural references aren't slipping too much at the age of 44, almost 45, but eventually they will, and eventually you will tell me. Well, Chariots of Fire, remember Eric Little said to his sister, Jenny, I believe God made me for a purpose, for China, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Well, Bezalel and Ahaliab might have said, I believe God made me to swing a hammer, to shape things. And when I, when I make something, I feel his pleasure. Now, you might not have that clarity about your calling or your gifting. You might not have that kind of confidence of Eric Little or Bezalel. You might be in years where you're still trying to figure that out, late teen years, early 20s. I've got two kids in college, two kids in high school, and there represented is a varying array of ideas and certainties or uncertainties about what they'll do past college. Uh, you might be well past high school, well past college, in your middle life years, and asking these questions all over again, still, still wondering, what, what is God up to with you? What's he doing these days? And by the way, that just practically speaking, that's going to happen more and more in our economy, in our job market here in America. Uh, men like Ben Sass. Senator in Nebraska have been pointing that out for a long time, that, that it used to be the case that someone would stay in a job, much less a, a career, for decades, sometimes their whole life. And increasingly the case now is people figuring out in their middle-aged years what, what career 2.0 looks like, career 3.0, career 4.0 looks like. But some of you may have even been more pessimistic than that, and you've at some point, you said, well, whatever I got, I don't got it, whatever it is. You might think, other people have a thing. That guy makes stuff from wood. This woman is great with numbers. That's amazing. She's smart. This guy can solve problems. I don't have a thing. Those are their things. I don't have a thing, you might say. Well, I'm not here today as a, a career counselor or a life coach, just as a, a humble pastor who wants to remind you of passages like Proverbs 8, to remind you that you 
are made in the image of God. You are made to do what God does. You are crowned with honor, according to Psalm 8. Now, I don't want to get Joel Olstein on you here. This is the Bible speaking, and some of us need to believe it about ourselves. Some of us might need to ask ourselves hard questions, like, do I compare myself to others too much? Do I have unfounded expectations about my future? Is it because I thought I'd be rich by now and, and I'm jobless right now that I'm shocked and surprised and frustrated? Maybe. But believe what the Bible says about you, crowned with honor and glory, made just a little lower than the angels for now, but Hebrews says the day's coming when we'll be over them in God's hierarchy of authority and privilege. And regarding your place in the church, well, let me read to you from 1 Corinthians 12. This is true of every Christian. Paul says there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each, to each in the church is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Skip down to verse 14. Listen to this, for the body does not consist of one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that wouldn't make it any less a part of the body. Verse 27, Paul says, now you are the body of Christ and individually you are members of it. I don't know what part you serve in the body, but I know if you're a Christian, you're connected. You're connected. This is you. So how do you view yourself? How do you view your ministry in the church? Sure, some people think too much of their place in the church, and that's why Paul in Romans 12, when he gives his account of spiritual gifts there, he begins by saying, let not any of you think more of himself than he ought. Some do think too, more, too much. But my experience is that a lot of people in the church think, well, whatever God made me to do, I don't know. I would do something in the church, I guess. I don't know what. Well, do something. Do something. Ask yourself what you want to do. Don't ask yourself what you're gifted in, like you're in the gifted program looking for this thing that sets you apart among the stars. No, what are you okay at? What can you contribute? That's it. What do you want to do? Which leads thirdly to the desire. Desire is part of this. In chapter 36, verse 2, there Moses called Bezalel and Ahaliab 
and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him up to come to do the work. Their hearts were stirred to do this. Called by God? Yeah. Gifted by God? Uh Uh-huh. And hearts stirred to go do the work. You see this in chapter 35, verse 25 as well, regarding skillful women. Every skillful woman spun with her hands, and they all brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. All the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skill spun the goat's hair. So get this, Bezalel and Holiab. They were called by name, audibly, by God, and assigned to lead the project. But countless others among the million-plus Israelites had to just figure it out. They didn't get the audio version of their calling. They assessed themselves. Can I do that? I'll do that. My heart stirred to do that. We might envy the clarity and the confidence of those who have some sort of visual or audible calling like the Apostle Paul had on the road to Damascus, but those are unusual both in the New Testament and in the Old. The rest of the people, like you and me, just had to figure it out. Should I do that? Should I give that? Can I contribute that? Would that be of help? Desire is no small part of the equation. It's not the only part. Desire and ability should go hand in hand somewhat. There should be some ability along with the desire. You can imagine that there probably were some sweet, elderly, Israelite ladies who said, I'll make something for the tabernacle. And they brought it to Bezalel. And he said, oh, thanks, that's sweet. I'm sure we can use it somewhere, right? And maybe that just wasn't her gift. And and so this is often helped by others around us affirming our gifts and confirming our desires, not thinking that desire trumps everything else. But then fourthly, there's the work involved For all of the calling, gifting, and desire, the work itself still had to be done. Work. That four-letter word is all through Exodus 31, 35, and 36. Yes, even craftsmanship, even art stuff, it needs work. Even with the calling, even with the gifting, even with a great desire from the heart, It needs work. Wood had to be cut before the days of power tools. The bronze had to be hammered out. The the materials needed to be manipulated and shaped. And so I'm sure, just like any good work, this side of the fall, there are moments of delight and disappointment even for these craftsmen. I'm sure there were points of awe and aggravation, fulfillment, 
frustration, worship, and and hand-wringing. I'm sure at times they were completely aware of the massive significance of what they were doing. I mean, to handle and to shape and to build out the mercy seat, which was to be a representative footstool for the very throne room of God, to be placed in the Holy of Holies, the place where sacrifice would be made in only once a year and only by the high priest, no one else. That is what they were making. And you can imagine them just mind-blown, floored. And I imagine there are other times where bronze is just bronze. I'm sick of bronze today. Honey, yesterday I was hammering bronze and I hit my thumb again. I mean, sometimes bronze is just bronze and hammers are just hammers. Just yesterday morning I was here in my study and I was working on this sermon. And I use that word intentionally. I was working on this sermon. And like many sermons I prepare It wasn't going easy or well or smooth. I was a little frustrated, actually, at the lack of progress and the lack of clarity in my head. And I was thinking, my wife and kids are home, and I wish I were home, and I really could use a day off right now. And and, and then Holy Spirit just grabbed a hold of me and made me realize, here I am preparing a sermon on the craftsmanship. The work for the worship of God while I complain about preparing that very sermon, right? Doctor, take your own medicine, right? This is, this is exactly what I needed. The Lord showed me yesterday, yesterday morning just how quick my heart can turn aside and complain. And we all know that. We know. We've experienced work putting a smile on our face, and then causing us to cuss, right? We know it can be fulfilling and frustrating. And there are actually reasons for that. There are theological reasons for it. And we should have those handy in our minds. Think of it as a, have a theology of work in your back pocket that you can pull out often to remind yourself of what's going on and what you're experiencing, what you're feeling, and what uh, should be. So let me offer four principles. You could call this a a theology of work from the Bible according to these four principles. Number one, work is good. It is God-like. God works. He has made us in his image. And one expression of that image is that we work, we create, we oversee, we manage, we multiply. That was a commission given to Adam in the garden. Work did not come after the fall. And work will not go away in a new heaven and a new earth. Therefore, work is good. But secondly, work is hard. This side of the fall, work is hard. Sin entered the world. The world and our work was placed under a curse. Genesis 3 calls it thorns and thistles, which aren't just related to farming, but that's just one example of 
thorns and thistles all over the place. In all of our labor, we're running into thorns and thistles. I always say, no home project can get started unless there are three trips to Lowe's. No less than three trips. I think it's going to be one. Oh, no, it's two. Sure enough, it's three. The curse got me again. Don't be surprised. Work is hard. Read Ecclesiastes from time to time to remind yourself how to lament the frustrations and even at times the futility of our work. Thirdly, work has great potential for sin. Like everything in this world, this side of the fall, work can be ignored it's called laziness. A person like that is called uh, a sluggard in the book of Proverbs. It's a big deal. Work can be ignored. Work can be idolized. From the Tower of Babel to the golden calf in Exodus 32 to King Nebuchadnezzar's golden statue. Work has great potential for sin. But fourthly, work has great potential for good. Work isn't just necessary. It's not a necessary evil. Work is not what we do so that we can do everything else we want to do. That may be true in your experience, but it's not true theologically. It's not true according to the Bible it's not true according to so many New Testament verses teaching about every day what we might call secular work, which maybe shouldn't be because it's done to God's glory. Colossians 3, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. At your place of work, in your schoolwork as a student, in your tasks around the house, all work, any work, it can be done consciously serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Dorothy Sayers put it so well, work should not be looked upon as a necessary drudgery to be undergone for the purpose of making money, but as a way of life in which the nature of man should find its proper exercise and delight and so fulfill itself to the glory of God that it should in fact be thought of as a creative activity undertaken for the love of the work itself. And that man, made in God's image, should make things as God makes them for the sake of doing well, a thing that is well worth doing. Elsewhere, she said, work is a celebration of the material world as the expression of God's creativity. We are most like our creator when we create, manage, subdue, beautify. Martin Luther called vocation the mask of God. The mask of God. Why? Well, because to your neighbors and friends, God is hidden. He's not visible. But when we serve them, when we work for them, 
we show them something of God. It's his mask. It's his hidden hand. In physics, they define work as moving an object through space. Right? That's the classic definition of work. But in theological terms, we could say that work is moving things from chaos to order for the glory of God and for the good of others, however big or small it might be. Let me say that again. It's moving things from chaos. Whatever degree of chaos we're talking about, it's moving it from that degree of chaos to more order. Not perfect order, but more order. Work is moving things, cleaning a playroom, changing a diaper, chaos, order. You see? Car doesn't start, car starts, chaos, order. Garage is cluttered, chaos. Fixing that to order. However big, however small, however long-lasting it may or may not be, it, it's work for the glory of God for the good of others. And now fifthly, let's talk about the God behind it all. Or maybe it would be better worded, the God in front of it all. It's, it's both. God's behind all this, right? God is the one commissioning the tabernacle, describing the exact parameters for the tabernacle. That was for God and for his presence among his people. God was behind it all. It was for him. And he's out ahead of it. What I mean by that is, whatever hard, good work was to be done by the craftsmen was only in response to what God had already done. They didn't make the gold and the bronze and the wood here and this thing like that and these cherubim on top so that God would like them, so that God would accept them. God had already delivered them, delivered them, remember, from slavery in Egypt. Remember, the big change in the book of Exodus is who they serve. They were serving Pharaoh and God has rescued them to serve the true and living God. Remember how Moses said at the edge of the Red Sea that fateful day with the Egyptian army bearing down on them. He said to the people in Exodus 14, Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord which he will work for you today. Their works in response to God's work, saving work. Later, Moses will pray, Deuteronomy 3 what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts? Again, their work. Important, yes. Necessary, in a sense. But only in response to what God had worked. His work comes first. His work is determinative. Their work is in response. And it's imperfect compared to his perfect work. So the basis for a relationship with God, the basis for the presence of God, 
the basis for God dwelling in the midst of his people is his people actually resting in what he has already done, not working. That's what the Sabbath represents, right? Resting, not working. By the way, that's what's talked about in the rest of our chapter, and we'll see it in detail next week. That's why we need more from God than just Israel's one-time deliverance from Egyptian slavery. They needed to keep resting in him. They needed him to continue to work, to work even more than he did the night of the Passover or at the Red Sea. Later on, the prophet Habakkuk foretold of a day where God would someday say, Look! I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if you were told. Well, the Apostle Paul grabs onto that line in an evangelistic sermon in Acts 13. As if to say, that is now. God is saying, I'm doing a work in your day right now. I've done it. You wouldn't believe it if I told you. In fact, I'm telling you right now and Many in that town did not believe it. What God had done, what God was doing, is the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, the salvation that's offered in him through that work upon the cross and resurrection. It's work. Jesus came to work. You see this from the earliest days. Luke 2, remember this, Jesus' parents accidentally leave him at the temple. And they don't know about it for like a couple of days. Then they realize, oh, we, where's Jesus? They traveled as big families back then, so you could easily lose a kid for a couple of days, apparently. <laughs> Nevertheless, they go back. They say, what are you doing? Well, he was debating theology with the rabbis. And he said, don't you know I must be about my father's business? He later said in John 6, I've come to do my Father's will. He said in Matthew 16, I will build my church. Jesus came to work. Jesus is the builder. In Luke 20, Jesus says that he's the rejected cornerstone. The builders, he says, that is the religious elite in his day, had rejected him as a cornerstone for God's new building, you might say. The irony is that in this rejected cornerstone, Jesus is indeed God's cornerstone. Upon him, everything else is built and laid out. He's the building, he's the builder. He said he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom or a, a payment for many. And that ransom worked. It worked. So that Paul can say in Ephesians 1, he can speak of the immeasurable greatness of God's power that's shown toward us who believe according to the working of his great might which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Or we could just put it in the, really the plain terms of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. 
verses that some of you may, might have memorized. By grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one can boast. You see, when it comes to salvation, you and I don't have it in us to polish things up, to make them pretty, and to present it to God as an acceptable sacrifice for our sins. So you leave that aside when it comes to salvation. You leave that aside. You don't work, you rest. It's not your doing, it's the gift of God. You simply trust. That's what faith means. But that's Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. And then there's verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So yeah, salvation, no, no works. You just come in by grace, through faith. You don't trust yourself, you only trust him. It's his doing, not yours. On the other side of that, let's get to work. Let's do something crazy. Let's build something this afternoon and give it away. Let's, let's consider whether we're sufficiently plugged into our local church whether we're really connected with other people in a way where I can actually offer things to you and you can offer to me. I don't mean possessions so much, but including possessions when that's needed. Maybe you need to join a church if you aren't a member of one. You know, not just occasionally attend, but like really plug in. We talk about covenant community or covenanting together. That's what church membership is for us. It means... I want to tell you that I'm in, and I want you to tell me you're in, and we'll kind of shake hands on this, that we're going to help each other until the Lord leads us elsewhere. In light of salvation, well, there's lots of work to do, in here and out there. Let's get after it. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we once again thank you for your rich and thorough and big word. Lord, we thank you for your grand plan. We thank you here in Exodus 31, by way of analogy, for the encouragement that a Bezalel and an Ahaliab can be for us in our service. Lord, we thank you for Jesus the Builder. We stand on him and his cornerstone today. We stand on his work today and his work alone. But we ask for your help, Lord. Give us strength and endurance. Help us to not be weary in well-doing as we work out our salvation, as we work on your behalf to represent you well in the world, and as we simply do work, every day, work. May we do it more often with a smile consciously aware of your presence and your purposes, even in difficulty. Lord, may it glorify you as we continue to try to think your thoughts after you for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.